Isolation. Greetings, Cracker Jack colleagues, and welcome to yet another installment of Device Nation, the voice of Operative Orthopedics. My name is Kevin Brown, your humble ASR. What's an ASR? Somebody asked me that the other day. Associate sales rep working alongside you all, recovering alongside you all post-Thanksgiving. I hope you all achieved peak pie. Friendly advice. You cannot achieve peak pie if you're even thinking about adding cloves to the pumpkin pie recipe. What a diabolical spice that is. Well, I hope the conversation around the table didn't turn diabolical and that your family is still on speaking terms. And what a perfect theme that is today as we're setting the table again, so to speak, for a main course with some side dishes to bring it all together. And just like Thanksgiving, you're going to need to pace yourself, let it digest before we get to the next course. And we're probably going to need a nap when it's all over as we're going into some tough subjects that honestly need to be talked about. But on the bright side, there will be no dishes needing to be done afterwards and everyone can just march themselves into the living room and watch the game guilt-free. And everybody said... Amen indeed. There's nothing quite like a 3,000 calorie meal to put me in the mood to wash 21 plates, 12 casserole dishes, 37 glasses, and 63 pieces of assorted flatware. Who doesn't push themselves away from a table after eating that much food and say to themselves, you know what? Put me to work. Well, I know some of the younger box openers listening here have been working hard trying to figure out what that word Cracker Jack meant at the beginning of the show. It means a person of market excellence, which is exactly who this audience is. By the way, I am so thankful for you. What an honor and a privilege to serve you each and every episode and the things that we're doing outside of the show. Just an incredible and inspiring group of people. Thank you for being part of this thing. Well, Cracker Jack also is the name of a molasses flavored caramel coated popcorn snack I was very thankful for as a young man. Introduced in 1896. Yes, I am that old. I've just had a lot of work done and no one is the wiser. Well, the more you eat, the more you want was the slogan they registered to kick it all off. I had some recently trying to relive the glory, and honestly, the more I ate, the more I wanted more peanuts and something other than a stupid sticker in the box as they used to really put cool stuff in there. Tattoos, dexterity puzzles, spinning tops, whistles, baseball cards. Well, I was in the OR lounge the other day amongst a lot of other tasty snacks and the only stupid sticker was courtesy of Reptrox. A nurse was pointing out the fact that she was leaving for another gig. Where to? Another asked. I'm going back to Chatham. She replied. I locked eyes immediately with the tech sitting beside me and in unison, we should Got back? I don't think so. Going back to Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. I'm going back to Dallas. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Generation Z, please refer back to LL Cool J for context here. Diagramming Jokes is one of the many services we provide here at Device Nation. No rep left behind. AUKUS 2022, just an amazing meeting as always there in Dallas. Thoroughly enjoyed meeting so many Cracker Jack reps, industry types, and surgeons. One in particular I ran into at the Gaylord was Dr. Ryan Nunley, consistently recognized on the best doctors in America list and doing 
so many amazing things in our reconstruction space. It's such an honor to bring his visionary visage to the Device Nation audience. You're definitely going to want to hang around for that. I took a crap ton of notes at the meeting, a listening tour, so to speak. Enjoyed shaking hands with so many of you on the floor and at the first ever MedRep Society social networking event. That was awesome. Hearing about what you're going through in the here and now. I have a lot of thoughts to share on that subject, but one takeaway was inescapable and in keeping with our Cracker Jack theme for a second. This business for reps in 2022 is a lot like that box of Cracker Jacks we just talked about. Seemed to have a lot more peanuts and super cool stuff some time ago, but lately not so many peanuts and just a bunch of stupid stickers. At one time, this was one of the most coveted sales jobs on the planet. But every time I turn around, someone is leaving. Something is going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I love this industry and I love my job, but something is changing. Now, if you're in a territory, I call it Fiji, right? And they are out there. Loyal surgeons, dominant market share developed over decades, contractual firewalls, swaying palm trees and fruity drinks with an umbrella. Well, Godspeed, fair winds and following Fast forward to the interview. Well, those of you who are left thinking to yourself, you know, my territory doesn't resemble a tropical paradise in the South Pacific. I want to share something really interesting that happened the other day. I put a post on LinkedIn asking, why are so many reps leaving our space? I mean, it's noticeable now. Well over 30,000 views the last time I checked. A ton of thoughtful replies and direct messages from reps who have either exited stage left or they have a foot out the door mentally. This has clearly struck a nerve, so we're going to spend some time on it with a mini-series entitled Joy and pain I like sunshine and rain get to rob Joy and pain love that stuff Easy E and Rob Bass 1989 not to be confused with the lesser known song entitled Soy and Pain released in 1995 commemorating the commercial launch of Tofurky <laughs> sorry not sorry I got so much joy playing this song as a club DJ, as well as his other big hit, It Takes Two. And you know what? Everybody loves joy. No one loves pain. And device sales has always had a certain measure of both, right? Let's look at the pain part for a second. Physical and or mental suffering and discomfort. 65 hours a week in this job is a light week. Mentally exhausting, giving all the things we have to deal with, from administrative to organizational to moving things around physically to working with people. Not all of them pleasant. Plus, you got the stress of surgery on top of it all. So with all that pain, why have so many people wanted to get into this job over so many years? Well, it's the joy of a nice paycheck compensating you handsomely for essentially giving your life away. Well, one thing that was abundantly clear with all the responses I got was that joy has been decreasing for some time with pain on an upward trajectory. Let's put that into an easy to remember formula we're going to refer back to later. Retention equals joy over pain. What is retention, by the way? The continued possession, use, or control of something, namely your employers continuing to possess you, you hanging around. Well, what is joy in this scenario? Income and perceived reward for doing the job. So let's say you're making a million dollars a year. You've got everybody using your joints, even general ENT and plastics. So that million dollars a year, that's your joy. And let's say the pain level, physical and mental, is 600 out of 1,000. So 
The retention score is 1,000. You would do that job for 1,000 years at that pay. Well, it's 2022. Your ASR is making $50,000 a year, and the pain level is now 800. So that number is now 62.5, which means you probably have 62.5 days to find their replacement, right? Ergo, as joy decreases and pain increases, retention is the casualty. Simple stuff here. So we've identified pain as the main course. Let's look at some side dishes. How about a sneak peek in the oven? Do not let the heat out, my mom always used to say, at what's coming your way. A sneak peek in the form of a mnemonic. Of course it's a mnemonic, and of course that mnemonic is pain. P for puppeteers. Thank you, Metallica, for that one. We're going to be looking at the decisions being made above your level that are adding levels of suck to three things. A, atmosphere, general atmosphere, work-life balance at the team, distributorship, and CEO level. I for income. You've heard of the glass ceiling. We're going to talk about the titanium ceiling. And lastly, N for inventory. Yes, we're going to make that work. It's a huge pain point for a lot of people right now. I know a high-profile rep who exited a few weeks back on just that issue alone. So let's stop here for a moment. Take a deep breath. I know some of you are listening to all this and thinking to yourself, things are never going to get any better in this job. The bad outweighs the good. Tragedy awaits around every corner. My new nihilistic normal will be of good cheer as remember, it's joy and pain. And my listeners are not those who call their pain a plant and water it every day. No, sir. No, ma'am. We look for joy. We look for pain relief in the midst of it all. Look, if you can't find it, if I can't help you find it, heck, if I can't find it, well, let's just all take a job in med tech sales. Well, I saw an x-ray of a knee the other day that had pain all over it. Screws everywhere. So many screws. I felt confident you could probably pick up at least 13 AM radio stations with this thing. Malunited shaft from a prior femoral fracture that made an I am Rod scenario with the distal femoral cut, a non-starter. Well, IntelliJoint to the rescue. We had that distal cut navigated in less than two minutes and dialed in a three-degree posterior slope and a one-degree varus. Tibial cut soon thereafter took about a minute to pull that off. Well, Don Henley famously sang, who is going to make it? We'll find out in the long run. IntelliJoint has made it in my book. They are a great company to work with. They've done it over the long haul with me. Bulletproof Mac laptop platform that's perfect. Perfect for the surgery center. I love using it for hips and knees. They take care of their agents. Zero drama. Email yours truly at sidelinesaturday at gmail.com if a small form factor, easy to use navigation system brings value to your surgeon or facility. It's a product I use from a company. I trust. Well, we've set the table, the table called pain. Who doesn't want to take a bite? And we're going to put some food on your plate as we explore how to maximize retention in these trying times. Strategies on how to increase joy whilst diminishing pain. Device Nation has a few ideas on pain relief and so look forward to sharing them with you. Look, it's not the Cracker Jacks of 1896, right? But what is? It still tastes pretty good. And I honestly believe if we look outside the box... We can still find a pretty cool toy to make up for that stupid sticker. Well, Dr. Ryan Nunley embodies the word Cracker Jack to me, not only as a surgeon, but as a mentor to many and such a valued partner with industry. Dr. Nunley, what an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, sir, and so look forward to asking you about your incredible career, AUKUS, technology in the OR, cementless total knees, hamburgers. But first, let's go back to Durham, North Carolina, my stomping ground. What put you on the path to medicine, sir? Well, I um, grew up in a family of 
parents both being in medicine. My father's uh, actually an orthopedic surgeon at Duke University. It's where he did his undergrad and then came back as a resident fellow and stayed on staff uh, for his whole career. And he's 75 and still going pretty strong there. Um, and then my mom was a emergency room nurse. And so I guess in the grand scheme of things, medicine was in my blood sure. from the beginning. And I uh, first went in to go and see my dad operate. This is back before there were a lot of rules. <laughs> Um, when I was seven years old, it was take your child to work day. And so my mom said, yeah, you should probably let him see what you do. So he took me to the hospital and it happened to be a day he was doing a total knee replacement. I got to see it for the first time. And, you know, the nurses were all concerned that if I saw blood, I may pass out. And I had no problem with the blood. But I'm not going to lie. The first time they used the cautery, I'm uh, leaning over, watching and that puff of smoke goes up. And, you know, that smell of burning flesh from there on out. And so I will admit I had nightmares for about a, a week afterwards that my dad burned people for a living. But uh, from that, I guess I got my roots and always knew that I loved orthopedics, especially total joints. And my career just continued to follow that path. Well, honors list, cum laude, so many awards throughout your academic career. Just curious, any advice for listeners in that phase of their life? Any hacks you learned along the way to find yourself at the top of the class? I mean, I think our generation and the current generation had different challenges, right? I mean, I think the biggest thing is I see my own children is the invasiveness of technology in their life. You know, everything comes in tweets or text messages or TikTok, um, these bursts of knowledge and social challenges, right? There's uh, all sorts of bullying to everything else um, that can distract you. And I think one of the things that made me successful was when I was trying to study I could only do it in the quiet of a you know, library conference room and I would spread all my stuff out and I'd plot myself there and have like a special spot where I'd get there early before anybody else could claim stake to it and just turn off the rest of the world. That was successful for me, but I didn't have a cell phone and I didn't have a, a laptop that, uh, you know, constantly dinged every time there was a message. So I, I do think it's probably a challenge for the younger group to figure out how to turn the, all the other influences off so they can focus when you're studying, working hard. And I you know, applaud those that have done very well because I think it becomes harder uh, for us as we see the newer and greater technology and connectedness to the world that we we had didn't have when I was growing up. Well, studying and working hard, you certainly did that as an undergrad at Vanderbilt and on to UNC School of Medicine. How was your time as a Tar Heel there? It was great. I mean, I think the benefit of the, the love-hate of medical school is that you've got a smaller class size. So you're sort of returning more to your high school where you knew everybody really well compared to undergrad where it was so big and spread out and people doing different majors and everything else. So that was a fun time and experience. But I will have to say my probably about a year and a half in, I remember this important sort of crux where I just became somewhat uh, frustrated. The medical school was not exactly what I had thought. I was prepared starting medical school to jump right in and start seeing patients and helping patients. And as many know, the first two years are mostly going to class from eight in the morning to five for lectures and going home to study and then doing cadaver labs. And you really had almost zero interaction with patients. So, you know, rote memorization night after night, sort of getting disillusioned by why am I learning biochemistry and certain aspects of medicine, pharmacology that uh, I didn't maybe see the forest through the trees? I remember having a conference with my mom saying, you know, I just, I'm not sure this is for me. I, I'm not enjoying this. Right. And she kept saying in her great words of wisdom, just give it 
a little longer. I think once you get to the clinical side, your third and fourth year, you'll find it totally different. And she was completely right. Once I got into the clinical space and seeing patients and going to the OR, you know, figuring out what to do next, writing orders, helping out the residents and fellows, it was clear that was what I was interested in. So the first two years were definitely a struggle because I didn't feel like I was doing what I was enjoying. Any mentors there in Chapel Hill that helped shape those years for you? Well, I was fortunate to get involved with research early with Billy Garrett. He was sports medicine trained and very well known. And then Paul Lakevich, who was one of the total joint surgeons there, wrote a few papers with them. Free time, I would jump into the OR and or their clinics. And I think they really helped to mentor me and continue. Uh, well, Paul Lakevich still does. We see each other at the Hip Society and the Knee Society meetings and Southern Orthopedic Association meeting. And he does take a lot of credit for my success and my uh, interest in orthopedics. I think he sometimes forgets, though, that, that my dad was also an influence, but he was actually a great mentor and has remained a friend and mentor since. Dr. Lakevich is certainly a force of nature there in North Carolina. Well, the state literally comes to a halt during one event there every year. And I just got to ask you, did you ever get to go to the ACC tournament? I absolutely did. And of all sports, my most avid interest is college basketball. I still think it's the most pristine of the sports. The pros, uh, you know, just they don't play defense. There's not as much teamwork. It's a little bit more one one showmanship here and there. But sure. um, yes, the Duke-UNC rivalry, the ACC, I do hate some of the curtain changes with the player portal and, you know, the potential that some of the big names in the ACC will be switching out because, um, you know, it is that tobacco road, the heritage there, great rivalry, unbelievable successes of both sides that just get you passionate about the pure love of the sport. No doubt. Well, certainly the more important question about your time in North Carolina, do you still occasionally pine for vinegar-based port barbecue? You know, I do. And it's strange. St. Louis barbecue tends to be very similar, which is interesting because there's Kansas City barbecue and that really competes. We do get back and get some good pulled pork. And actually, uh, Mike Bolognese, who uh, I know has been on the show before, his brother uh, runs one of the big barbecue catering services, probably is the best, the Bull Durham barbecue. And when we go back, Bolo has a uh, at his house occasionally some of the uh, events there. And I think next year he is the president of, I can't remember if he's president of Hip Society or Nice Society, one of them, but it's going to be in Durham. And I believe he said his brother is going to be helping uh, do some of the events. So look forward to that as well. St. Louis, you said it, best ribs on the planet, in my humble opinion. Washington University School of Medicine for Residency and Fellowship. How was your time? there and how did you find yourself in St. Louis and not Durham? Yeah, so I was looking at the end of my medical school career to see where to apply. And obviously, the third year to starting fourth year, medical students talk to advisors within the field that they're interested in. It came across my desk that Washington University and the chairman who had been there for just a few years, Richard Gelberman, was one of these unbelievable thought leaders within orthopedics, one of the most sought after candidates for chairmanship. And he was really making the program for uh, building it up to be what he thought could be one of the premier ones in the country. And so I did an away rotation at Washington University after going to several others. And it was just amazing to see the stark contrast in terms of their emphasis on resident uh, education experience. They were very adaptable and moldable, trying to figure out what the best learning environment was and how to really take 
residents and mold them into being the best fellows and future surgeons, whether it was going into private practice, academics, privatemics. They really just wanted you to succeed and came here thinking I was only going to be here for five years and then go somewhere for a fellowship and practice probably back East Coast, but ended up finding St. Louis to be a very comfortable place to live, cost of living very reasonable, traffic's very manageable, and uh, great mentors, uh, friends, colleagues here that uh, kept me around. The title of your fellowship, sir, Joint Preservation, Resurfacing, and Replacement. A lot has changed on those subjects, especially the first two, right? Well, we still have one of the higher volume centers for joint preservation in the country, mostly credited to my senior partner, John Quilacy, who's written probably about as much as anybody in the world uh, behind Reinhold Gans, a few other notable uh, people. And that success brings patients here. Um, As part of my training, I obviously did uh, joint preservation surgical procedures, and I still do quite a few hip arthroscopy procedures a year. Dr. Kwosi does the open hip surgical dislocation and periosteotomy osteotomies. So I'd say from that standpoint, actually, we've hired on several more people, Dr. Cece Pasquale Garrido and Jeff Neppel, who is one of our residents, who's a pediatric orthopedic surgeon focused on sports. So between the four of us, very high volume for joint preservation. And then the hip resurfacing, I think when I was doing my fellowship, that was the hot time for metal on metal in the 2007 to 8 time period. And as you know, uh, metal on metal has uh, really tanked with the exception of hip resurfacing, in particular, the Birmingham hip resurfacing having actually excellent results. We published on our 10-year results and we're just about to, uh, we're pulling the patients in for our 15-year follow-up just to see how they're doing. But for males with arthritis under the age of 60, it's still a great operation with good survivorship. I personally am not doing those cases anymore just because the volume nation why I dropped and my uh, senior partner, Robert Barrick, is still very passionate about it. So one guy doing the majority of them probably has better outcomes than two of us splitting them because I think he's still only doing two or three a month. So it's not huge, huge volume. Well, here we are, doctor. 2022, Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, tell us about your practice these days. Yeah, so I have a pretty high volume practice built off lots of referrals between partners to community surgeons. So vast majority of my cases are primary and revision hip and knee replacements, about 10% still be in joint preservation with arthroscopy of the hip. So within that, we've also been very successful. And as you probably know, Kevin, they haven't trained any additional medical students or residents. Our volumes are going up. The baby boomers, around 2000, there were 20 million Americans over the age of 65, and now we're close to 70 million. So that three and a half time increase, if you haven't trained more people, we're trying to figure out how to be more efficient. So we're also in St. Louis, probably prior to the last, say, five to 10 years, we're the capital of cementless total knees. So as I started my practice, seeing uh, patients who had Cementless total knees in, coming in for routine follow-up at 20 years with great osteointegration. So all of my practice uh, since I began in 2008 has focused a lot on cementless total knees and not resurfacing the patella. I treat all the patellas with a lateral prostatectomy, but we've got a whole knee society chapter on it. But I would say it's been great. And part of that benefit and some of our research and work is how do we deal with managing these patients who are having to wait six months to see us and run out of four to six months for surgery. So 
enabling technology or cementless total needs where we can save time, we can effectively take care of more patients and obviously keeping costs in check. We've written some papers on costs that actually cementless total needs, if you take the time that you save in the OR, plus you cross out the extra cement and cement supplies, really for us, it's almost cost neutral. Followed up our paper on that was the Rothman Group finding the same thing, and they're very dialed into a cost in their system. So it's great to see that cementless total needs actually to a health system are not a cost generated compared to cemented when you take uh, all the factors in. But if you just look at the sticker price, sure, there's a difference in the price between the two, but you really have to take in indirects as well. A fun fact that I picked up at Acus, I don't know if it's a fact for sure, but a friend that I trust was telling me about back in 1980, the Halmedica PCA that kind of got the whole cementless thing going. Every now and then you would see these beads shed on the x-ray. And he said that it was because those things were literally put on by hand. And I, I kind of went, wow, did not know that. I think that's where cementless total knees has a little bit of a bad taste, uh, especially for a little bit of the older surgeon population. But you have to remember, a lot has changed with the design, the ingrowth surfaces, our understanding of knee balancing, of the articulation and the forces that are generated with the patella, uh, the design features, the polyethylene. So yes, early versions that were just lightly applied and then had screws placed that then will create massive channels for osteolysis or metal back patellas that would fail. That really led to a huge downturn of the use of cementless. But if you actually look at the most recent AJRR data, which just came out at Acus last week, the rate of cementless is the fastest growing rate in total knees of all AJRR members with primary knees. It's 18.8% now are cementless. That's going up from 14% the year before and about 9%. So huge acceleration. If you look at the chart, it's taken off. Uh, if you talk to the uh, striker guys, they're close to 50% almost 60% of their triathlons now are going in cementless. So, you know, I think as we get better technology, whether it's robotics, navigation, certainly better understanding of balancing, better implant material properties, 3D printed titanium, that uh, has now proven that cementless and these are extremely uh, durable and great outcomes. Now, do I think it's going to ever be 100%? No, I think it's sort of like a total hip where there's going to be patients who have really soft bone and re- or really bad deformity or other factors that even in my practice, about only 85% get cementless. So I think it's a great option for younger patients with good bone because it's one less interface that after it gets ingrown can fail over time. You look at any cement and any sidewalk, any road, any garage over time, that cement starts to crack. Well, the cement, when it goes into the total E, when you leave the OR, that's the most durable that cement's ever going to be. It just weakens over time compared to a cementless. Once it gets ingrown over the first few weeks, it biologically stays fixed uh, for the long term. So question, sir, I know this is a subject you're very passionate about, and I would be amiss if I didn't ask you for pearls and pitfalls. Yeah, I think the, the pearls are on the femoral side. I think you have to be meticulous with your four-in-one cup blocks. And by that, I mean, you have to remember there is no grout of cement to make up for any inaccuracies in your cuts. So with that, I always emphasize stability of the cup block is paramount. You have to be really careful as you pass the saw through that the weight of the saw, the torque of the saw doesn't lift up the cup block. So I always have four pins in. I'm usually uh, assisting our residents and fellows to make the cut. I'm pushing as hard as I can with a cob. It's sort of another point of fixation to avoid that block from, uh, from tipping. 
So a surgeon who's super fast, but freehands a lot of cuts or goes back without putting the blocks on, I would caution that cementless may not be right because you really need those precision cuts. You also have to know the width of your saw blade. Some surgeons have a preference for the hospital mandates, so not all saw blades are the same thickness. That can throw off some of that uh, press fit. And then you have to be honest with yourself about the bone quality. So, you know, really dense bone is great, really soft bone where the saws like a hot knife are better, but underlying supporting structure may not allow enough macro interdigitation to get ingrowth early, and that could lead to some liftoff, which could loosen it. On the tibial side, the tips and pearls there, I think, where we may traditionally take a tibial cut, for example, big male, varus deformity, hard medial bone that's sclerotic. When you take the saw across there, sometimes it can be really polished and many surgeons, when you cement, will then take a drill bit and drill a few poke holes. Well, in cementless, I would recommend against that. I think with that really polished bone, either the thermal necrosis caused by this, uh, the blade or the fact that it's so polished that it really doesn't have good blood supply, you can see some potential radiolucent lines there. So my recommendation for that is if you already know in advance this patient's likely to have that scenario of hard sclerotic bone there, just drop your cut guy down two millimeters or... If you cut it and recognize it, just drop it down. I'm okay going up a little bit on the poly thickness, but I worry about putting a cementless implant directly on that hard bone that may be overheated or avascular from that sclerosis. So that's sort of the tip, the two big tips and pearls. You talked about respecting that four-in-one block. Does that striker precision saw blade play a role in trying to accomplish that? You know, I've heard the data on it. Our institution, just from the cost standpoint, have not allowed us to use it. But I do know many surgeons have and, and do uh, tend to like it. But like anything, there is a bit of a learning curve. And remember, when you switch companies from a striker blade through different companies, cut blocks, it may not fit the right way. So you just have to sure. know the specs and make sure that it uh, functions well. It's not generating so much metal debris or binding up on you. Well, Dr. Dunley, let's talk about after the procedure's been done. Is manipulation safe under anesthesia? Uh, when there's cementless implants involved? Yeah, we just had a paper that was published just in the last few months. It was a multi-center study between the Rothman Institute and the, our institution where we looked at this because the concern would be if you have a cementless implant, we know it takes probably a few months, uh, a year to get fully ingrown. Obviously, we expect early bone ingrowth to give it the initial stability, but that'll keep getting better. Well, that same time period is when you're worried about patients and their range of motion and potential manipulation. So we went back on the two institutions and looked at all the cementless knees as well as cemented to compare to see if there was any difference in failure rates of aseptic loosening in the cementless thinking maybe they would have a higher incidence because the bone isn't totally solid, but found, in fact, there was no difference at all with the cement was having increased problems having a manipulation in that first uh, few weeks after surgery. Well, companies left and right are adding this technology to their bag. In addition to the Depew armamentarium late last year was the Attune Affixium with 3DP technology, Dr. Nunley. Tell us all about it. I refer to it as sexy materials, right? 3D printing is the new hot topic for a lot of things in orthopedics. We know titanium and its porosity and affinity for bone and grow is an excellent material to use. It provides an infrastructure scaffold that's much like Kinsella's bones. So with that, I think as we look at the different options out there, people are steering away from cobalt chrome trays. They're potentially stiffer. They obviously have nickel uh, concerns for some patients with metal allergies. So the Affixium is nice that it's 3D printed. It has a great friction type of 
affixing material on the outer core of the uh, implants and the tibial tray, the pegs and part of the keel. We've been using it just at a year now. And I will say compared to what we've, I've used in Simelis technology the last 14 years at this point, it goes in with the cruciform design and really gets a great fit. And we're actually in the process of looking this up. We really don't see any radiolucent lines under it so far in a year. So it's been maybe even more of an advantage compared to other predicate smellless implants I've used over my 14-year career. But obviously, time will tell in the research. That's why we do it, to make sure that's a true point. Before we leave cementless knees, doctor, uh, what do you see on everybody's least favorite subject, uh, infection, in that realm? Yeah, I think, you know, for my 20-year career, this is the one area that we just still struggle with. I mean, everybody does. And obviously, these are some of the most devastating problems for patients. The one data point that I would like to emphasize is the fact that the AJRR data shows that cementless total knees actually have the lowest infection rate. Now, that you know could be somewhat biased because these patients could be a little younger and healthier, but I would say it's also my experience. I mean, cement is not as benign of a material as we think it to be. You know, you put the cement in, somebody has touched maybe the implant with a glove, now the cement's on top of it and the glove may have been contaminated and there's no ability for the body's immune system or the antibiotics that the patient's getting perioperatively with the with their IV antibiotics, those three doses, to be able to penetrate that area. So I think that is a real concern. If you can show, and now they have with the AJR data over time, that cementless has the lowest infection rate. So, you know, you're working with cement, little pieces fleck off your own glove. Uh, you're trying to meticulously pull these little tiny pieces off. Uh, you're waiting for the cement to set up those pieces of cement are a third body. They can be an irritant. As you have increased blood flow, certainly can get colonized. So I think it's important to emphasize, not that I think that cementless is totally infection-free, but as we look at the data, the data is clear that there's a benefit to cementless knees from that regard. I sent Dr. Springer a congratulations the other day. I was looking over the latest AJRR report. That's just come so far, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think it still has a ways to go. And by that, I mean, it's yes, the the people who have put in the last 15 years of dedicated time and effort and running, raising the funding for it. But, and while the number of patients enrolled is greater than any other registry out there, it's still not 100%. And the reason that we really emphasize the Australian and the UK registry is that the surgeon and the hospital don't get paid until they put the patient's data in. So they capture 100% of patients. So if a patient has surgery in London, but then gets revised two years later in Birmingham, there's full accountability. And then that surgeon who did the first surgery gets an email. And so it allows you, I think, to really look at your successes and your failures and to be able to make better assumptions about implants or topics that when you, when in the AJR, I think we're 55, 60% of hospitals are included. If a patient has surgery in St. Louis, but it's revised in Alabama, that uh, if they're not both in the AJR, it doesn't get counted. So I think, you know, the future goals would be to get as many hospitals enrolled to make the data even more impactful. But I congratulate all those, uh, including Dr. Springer most recently, who have had a hand in its success and continued uh, improvement. Before we leave infection, sir, any thoughts on how staples and suture play into this subject? Well, this is another area that I'm passionate on, and I give lots and lots of talks. It's actually one of my more commonly requested topic uh, when giving you know, grand rounds or uh, or lectures, and that staples are quick and simple, um, but in the two major studies, one in general surgery looking at abdominal wounds and one out of the Mayo Clinic was a randomized prospective closing the knee. These staples effectively reduce blood flow, cause more local ischemia, 
And we know reduced blood flow and ischemia are certainly precursors to increased infection rates. But I also find that staples are an area of stress for patients and their family. They can feel them. They have to have them removed. It's not a benign process, even though as physicians, we don't find that to be a really you know major pain generator. But patients get very anxious and nervous about it. I haven't used staples in probably now 10 years, and I use a lot of barb sutures, and I, I also implore them because of the fact that they create a more watertight closure. Right. We put in the implants, we give each other high fives, like this is perfect, everything looks great, and then we turn over wound closure to the most junior person in the room, whether it's a PA, a first surgical assist, a resident, a fellow. If we walk out and they start turning the music up and talking about the weekend plans or you know, not focusing and they miss one stitch uh, where it's not laid down perfectly or they gap two stitches too far apart, that becomes a weak point for fluid to uh, ooze out. And then we're going to get the patient up a few hours later to start doing physical therapy. And that stress on that repair may cause drainage. And we all know drainage is the bane of our existence. It means more dressing changes, calls to the office. You know, do you put them on antibiotics? Do you not? When do you wash them out? And we know drainage also increases colonization and increased periprosthetic joint infections. So for me, if we avoid or minimize or completely eliminate drainage, then everything down Hill has improved. And my personal practice, we looked at it before and after we instituted barb sutures and, and other closure techniques, we substantially reduced our infection rate. And I think that we became much better at closing those wounds and creating a watertight environment to not, not let them drain. So I'm anti-staples and use a lot of barb sutures and subcuticular stitches. You know, some time ago, Dr. Nunley, the Depew reps had a co-marketing agreement. I don't think that's going on anymore with the company, but they were out pitching Prenio and it was very successful for them. I always thought it was really cool. So number one, are you using it? And number two, what do you think about it? I do. I think there's certainly an upside and a downside. I just find on the knee, when we used regular Dermabond, the, the, the single coat was just a little too thin of that bead for the amount of force the skin takes when they start therapy. And we'd have some of them peel off and then start to drain. The Prinio gives that wider surface area to get a, a much more even tension across the incision. So it leaves a very beautiful cosmetic incision, very low to almost no drainage. So the one advantage that I really do like about the Prinio is that it also creates a true watertight seal um, on the skin. So I allow patients to take a shower the minute they get home from the hospital. And I think that provides two benefits to them. One, everybody feels better after they've taken a shower, right? You lay around in the bed, you're hot, sweaty, you feel like you stink. You're self-conscious about it. But second is it now has decleansed the body of any potential nosocomial contamination, right? So the patient's in the same bed where two days ago was a MRSA patient. I'm sure they've attempted to wipe it down and sterilize it. And sure, everybody should do a great job of foam washing their hands as they come in and out. Well, similar patient goes home and, you know, they've got a dog and the dog starts sniffing their wound and or licking it. I mean, we've heard the weirdest things. Right. Oh, I totally forgot I wasn't supposed to get in the hot tub and I just got in, you know, two weeks out because I thought I was healed up. So it just gives me one more area that's a barrier. Plus the mesh is wide enough that if they pick the edges, they're not picking right on the scab or the incision because it's about an inch and a half wide. So I think all those reasons, that's a benefit to me and my, my patients. The downside is the Prinio is a chemical reaction with the liquid form of the Dermabond. And there is a about a 1% risk of patients getting an allergic reaction. 
And when that occurs, it can look just like a raging cellulitis. And I would say, in my almost 10 years now of using the Perneo, eight years whenever it came out, we have those. We've never had one that's gone on to a deep infection, but it looks disconcerting the first time you see it. So we have information we provide to patients and we try to do screening because it's a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. So usually they've been exposed to something that triggers their allergic reactions. So women who have had previous fake fingernails or eyelashes that got rashes, patients who've had previous medical tape or band-aid allergies, people who work with certain chemicals we know are increased risk. We try to screen for that, but we still have the occasional patient with a rash. Let's talk unicompartmental knees for a moment, doctor. I read a really interesting article of yours entitled High Prevalence of Radiographic Outliers and Revisions with Unicompartmental Knee Arthroplasty. Well, with that line as a dubious backdrop, what role does unicompartmental knees have in your practice these days and what can surgeons learn from your work on that paper? Yeah, I think that this is one area that my practice has changed dramatically. So after finishing fellowship, I uh, was very conservative with unicompartmental knee replacements, the strict Cozen and Scott criteria. So about 7% of my patients, and similar with my partner who's a co-author, Robert Barrick, And then we started really getting into the weeds and measuring the uh, position, the overhang, the alignment, because the uni is definitely more challenging surgical procedure to hit all the alignment and sizing targets because you're not opening up the whole knee. You're not uh, releasing the ACL and subluxating the tibia. So harder to see in the back to size it. And so we were very dissatisfied with the fact that so few patients had good alignment, sizing, and targets being hit with our manual unique compartmental knees. And then we introduced a robot. And about five years ago, I would say that was a game changer in the sense that I now am probably about 22, 23% partials, and they are my happiest patients. And in the five years of using the robotic assistance, I have not had to revise one of those. And with that, there's a follow-up study that if it hasn't come out, should be out any day that shows improved accuracy of the robotics in terms of hitting all those alignment and sizing targets. So effectively almost reducing them much more dramatically than what we have seen in a total knee replacement. And again, partial, you have a smaller incision less soft tissues that you're releasing. So it is harder to visualize things with conventional instrumentation. And that's a real advantage from a robotic standpoint. And since I haven't revised any in that five-year time period of my own, I'm now starting to expand my criteria a little bit more. And I have more and more patients coming in and telling me, you know, they're already back to pickleball at four weeks and things that just, they do recover faster than a total knee. So they're very happy with that uh, when they're a candidate for it. I don't know what it is about pickleball, but it seems to be finding its way into more and more Device Nation episodes. Uh, I was talking to a surgeon out at AUKUS, Dr. Nunley, about a 22-year follow-up patient that he was working with, with a Rapici knee. And my first thought was robotic technology. Uh, Dr. Rapici just had a really cool technique that he ironed out, but it was not as reproducible, it seemed, uh, in a community setting. And it seems like a robot could absolutely pull it off. Just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, again, I think that the partial knees are more challenging. That was part of the reason when the Oxford got uh, approved in the U.S. It is a very technique-dependent design and implant, and they required surgeons to train with a mandatory training before they could do it because they recognized that it was more technically challenging. I think the advantage to the robotic side is that it takes so many of those factors and decision points and simplifies them so that you can run through scenarios of changing the angle, the flexion, the rotation 
so that you can optimize it before you ever make your first cut. So you take the guesswork out of it and it becomes more of an automated process. So anything that's repetitive that we can more automate and improve alignment and uh, component positioning to uh, hit the center of the bullseye every time or very close uh, helps improve uh, our success as surgeons, but our patient outcomes and longevity of the implants. Well, speaking of longevity of the implant, what a segue there. I was listening to Hotel California in the OR the other day, and one of the lines from that song just jumped out at me, pun intended. Lines on the mirror, lines on her face. She pretended not to notice. She was caught up in the race. Well, what about lines on the x-ray, Dr. Nunley? That was quite a buildup. Radiolucent lines. (laughs) Should we pretend not to notice them or really not notice them as they're clinically irrelevant? Yeah, I think we all as surgeons who put implants in get a little nervous when we see anything that catches our eye or the patients can pick up on. So radiolucent lines are those things, whether they're on total hips, whether cemented or cementless, total knees, unicompartmental knees, and obviously the areas where they're most concerning are in the patient who has some pain. If they're totally asymptomatic and they have little radiolucent lines that haven't changed over years, then I'm not worried about it. It's probably some stress shielding or for example, cementless, just like we see on total hip side. There's only a certain amount of the implant that needs to get ingrown for it to be stable. So there can be pockets that are have fibrous membrane that you can see potential radiolucent lines or stress shielding that don't affect the patient's their satisfaction or their ability to have a good functional joint that doesn't create pain. And then there's others that are progressive, greater than two millimeters. The implant has changed positions. The zones of the radiolucent lines are contiguous over multiple zones. Those are the ones that we obviously worry about. And, you know, there's always going to be naysayers, whether it's like religion, the CR versus PS, patella resurface, not resurface, cemented, cementless, and people will stand up and debate this. But you sort of have to choose which parts of the argument are most pertinent to you in your practice. If you were in Florida and your average age of your total knee patient was 75 years old, cementless may not be right for you. If you are you know, essentially a, a surgeon who does a lot of sports procedures, ACL meniscectomies, and your average total joint patient is 55, I'd say cementless probably does have a much bigger role. And with that, you just have to know the albatross or the, the negatives of each of your implants and material properties because you're going to see some of these things. But some of our research has shown that with newer implants compared to the predicate, as you mentioned, LCS versus the Attune, uh, RP, we're seeing reduction in that radiolucent line. And as I mentioned earlier, now that I have my one-year follow-ups of the asphyxium, seeing essentially no radiolucent lines, I do think we may have made a substantial jump there. We'll look forward to looking at the data as we get the research back on that. If that's a true fine error, that's just an early couple cases uh, that are just coming in for their one-year follow-up. To the hip for a moment, doctor. Does uh, dual mobility have a place in young active patients? When we talk about preferences, um, dual mobility is, uh, to some people, it's a savior, and to others, it's uh, the devil. And by that, I mean, there's certainly perils and pitfalls. And I think the biggest thing from our research was that as the utilization of dual mobility went up, we really wanted to focus on patients who are young and active. So the benefit of getting a big head for stability, and we compared it to our hypersurfacing, which is a really big head, and return to high-level sports occupations, what we found is that the dual mobility actually functions extremely well. And then one of the other concerns that came up was if you're using a modular dual mobility, that's now a metal liner snapped into a metal shell of titanium shell with a cobalt chrome liner. 
and the potential for metal ion generation? And are we really just um, sitting on the sidelines waiting for the next huge metal failure now with the modular liners of dual mobility? And with that, we've had two papers, a short-term and then a mid-term follow-up of young active patients with high UCLA scores that were prospectively enrolled with no signs of any metal-associated issues, no metal ions that even crossed the threshold to be concerned about. We're following them, obviously, because of their young age at the time of surgery and their high activity level to make sure there's no failures. But with that, you look at the data on revision total hips, it's clear the dual mobility has the greatest reduction in dislocation. Constrained liners are difficult to put in from the surgeon's side. When they do dislocate, it's a mandatory return to the OR. So I've gravitated towards, and I'm certainly in a minority, but there's a growing number of us who use dual mobility for essentially every case, primary and revision. What I will say is on my primary side, though, I use the Bimentum, which is a Depew product they bought from France. It was called the Surf over there. It is a monoblock dual mobility that um, the benefit of the monoblock is that there's not a modular liner. So I do not have to worry about any concerns about a liner to cup a generation of metal debris. It also gives me the greatest thermal head size to put in there. And we just presented our data at the Hip Society and we're submitting our paper that's uh, due next week on our success. So over 600 patients of mine with a posterior approach. So again, the maybe a higher risk surgical procedure from the posterior approach. We went to dual mobility and we got rid of all of our posterior hip precautions. So patients do not have the typical hip precautions. And I think I had prior to that, tried to switch over to anterior approach for a while from just hearing everybody talk to them, talk to a meeting, seeing how great it was. I actually found the results not to be that great. The wound healing problems, the skin, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve being an issue. So I went back to many posterior and now with dual mobility, no hip precautions. And patients, I think their satisfaction is so much greater just by getting away from the hip precautions. Tell them they can sleep in positions that they feel comfortable on their side, their back, their stomach. They can sit in any chair, which also, I think, takes stress off the family members who are constantly trying to bark at them. Don't bend your leg. Don't cross your leg. So, right. so I do think there's a huge, uh, in my practice, advantage to that. And I've only had one dislocation of those over 600 patients. And that was actually an unfortunate patient who had a spinal cord injury at baseline and, and in the process of just rolling him in and out of the bed because he's non-ambulatory or minimal ambulatory, it uh, caused it to pop out. So really, that's sort of a, an outlier for a number of reasons, but I've been very happy with it. And uh, to me, it's a great uh, option if you're not somebody who's ready to switch over to a totally different surgical approach, maybe just simplify life with a different implant and get rid of the hip precautions. Quick note on that bimentum. I think it is so cool that they actually added iliac flange and obturator hook options to that for revisions. Very well thought out. I have to give credit where credit's due. Uh, the group in France that came up with a surf and the Karai actually have some of the best uh, ideas. And then the, um, I believe that's also the same area or group that came up in the shoulder with a reverse shoulder. So I mean, I think it, it should be pointed out that improvements in technology, and, and they were thinking way outside of the box, but actually have really moved the mark on a lot of things. You know, the Karai, one of the best 
stems with clinical success. Uh, it's now come out with its second version called the Emphasis, which uh, goes off the predicate of the Karai with improvements in sizing and offset. Some of the things that drove some surgeons nutty about the Karai have been uh, improved with the Emphasis. And so, yeah, I give them credit for the surf, the Karai, and the uh, the reverse total shoulder. We talked about bimentum. Let's talk about momentum. A lot of momentum on same-day discharge these days. I noticed an interesting publication you were part of that identified patient allergies as part of that mix. What did you learn? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of work recently as there's a big movement towards short-stay surgery or ASC um, outpatient joints. And part of that is you obviously want to set yourself up for success, right? And by that, you have to look at what things went well and what things did not go well. For that, looking at patients who were initially thought by just our clinical parameters and patient patient interest in going home the same day, and then when they fail to go home, why did they fail in doing logistical regression analysis of it? And I think, you know, from a surgeon standpoint, I hate to look at somebody who has 20 allergies and say that person probably has some mental anxiety, fear, catastrophizing, but there is a bit of a affiliation there. And we've seen that in multiple publications that it's just one other factor as we really look at outpatient surgery and worry about the major things, the cardiovascular system, their medications, their age, their social support. Well, one of them is their mental health. And I think with that, we're trying to just create algorithms to be more successful in selecting these patients early and getting them home without failure. Our system, fortunately, is almost like an orthopedic specialty hospital. And so half the patients get discharged from the downstairs, almost like an ASC the same day, and the others have the ability to stay a few nights upstairs. So we really aren't mandated that it's just an ASC and there's no place for them to go. But we do keep tight control of the metrics of who fails to launch and going back and relooking at that's helpful to maybe prevent that. So it's not a frustration for the family who now has to take an extra day off work because they thought mom was going to be home the same day and now had to stay overnight or the patient's not upset because they hate hospitals and now they had to stay in the hospital. So I think it's helping to manage expectations and improve outcomes. One more question about allergies, doctor. You were part of a team that received a James A. Rand Young Investigators Award. Congratulations on that, by the way. Entitled, Questioning the Nickel-Free Total Knee Arthroplasty. We have talked about this subject ad nauseum on Device Nation. What did you learn? Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is going into that whole allergy. Is this a true allergy, not a true allergy, skin allergy versus implanted allergy? I mean, people will have strong opinions on both sides. I think in my true lifetime, I've not really seen a patient that I could say definitively had a metal allergy. I have a couple that have rashes around the incision or their body that persisted that maybe it could be. And we've done some of the, the more expensive lymphocyte testing of it. But you know, the question really is just because an implant material property says, hey, it's the materials that are less likely to generate allergic responses because it doesn't have the cobalt, chromium, or nickel component to it. Well, our saw blades, our pens, our cutting blocks still have all those materials in there. So we took synovial samples of patients with different implants, including oxinium implants, thinking, well, surely those would have the lowest amounts of metal ions because the implant has none and then measured it and found that actually they immediately after surgery had the highest amounts because the I guess the torque on the cutting blocks, the tolerances generated more metal ion debris that stays in the, the synovial fluid and tissue, at least initially. So it sort of goes against the grain of, hey, this is a better implant for somebody with a metal allergy, where in fact, it could be doing just the same thing. So 
as we try to purse out what's the right way to approach these patients, it's just one more cog in the wheel of trying to get an understanding of how to choose implants and do their surgical procedure. Well, Dr. Nunnally, we talked about lines earlier. There were certainly a lot of lines at the most recent AUKUS meeting. Great turnout. Awesome presentations. What did you walk away with? You know, one is it's great to see so many of our colleagues being able to attend in person again. I think, you know, from a standpoint of learning and collaborating, doing online Zooms or remote meetings has some advantages. You don't have to travel with your family, leave your practice as much, but you do miss out on that ability to approach a speaker or a colleague, you know, to really talk about cases and learn. So it's great to see over 4,000 people show up in person and to be able to have that collaborative discussion that we loved about the ACAS meeting for 25 years prior to COVID hitting. So it was great to see that. I think the other things are just the high quality of the scientific presentations. You know, they had 1,800 abstracts for just about 60 podium presentations and then I think 300 posters. So you're really getting the highest level of total joint material out there. And, you know, the academy is, I think, dwindling a lot. Um, Specialty numbers continue to drop. And part of it is surgeons don't want to take off five, six, seven days to attend the academy where everything's spread apart and pockets remains sort of uh, pursed well with their short duration of the meeting, all about total joints and things that are important from implants and technology to also the other thing we can't forget about is the advocacy side that Oculus provides. And, you know, there's a lot of healthcare reform going on and it's very difficult as a practitioner to stay up to date on that because by the time something's written, in the, the journals or written in a way that gets out to the members, things have changed a lot. So it's nice to be able to have symposia and updates from the AUKUS board that I'm a part of to be able to, to know where we stand with CMS and the RUC audits and future payments for the services and what are we trying to do to counter the constant pressure to reduce surgeons' payments and and the future of our practice. Uh, how do we train the future surgeons uh, who are interested in this field? to be able to avoid some of the things that are impending on the future to keep them financially successful and being able to have access to patients and take care of them. So I think those are the big things that I've taken away and just uh, really think Octus is the premier place for that type of collaborative knowledge and and education for all of the members. Well, you were part of a great discussion, Symposium 1, the future of total joint arthroplasty. Quick side note, Dr. Nunley, the moment that discussion started, there were like hurricane force winds going on outside, tornadoes. It was crazy. And the whole storm stopped about the time that the session ended. Was somebody trying to tell us something? (laughs) You know, it's uh, funny they mentioned as I walked up on stage that that was going on because clearly in the, the ballroom, there's no windows, so you couldn't see it. But they had a, uh, a strategy, and I was constantly monitoring my phone because if we got the warning, they were supposed to alert me to jump up and tell everybody to run down to the exhibitor hall. And so we were all laughing that the participants would hate it, but man, the exhibitors sure would love to have uh, <laughs> yes, you know, 3,000 people flood the gates and have to be stuck down there for an hour, um, you know, really looking at all of the uh, exhibitors who are great partners of ours. And I, I think they get a lot of great traffic through. But yeah, I think uh, maybe it is. Uh, it was certainly a controversial topic from everything from the healthcare reform at the government side to the changing practice strategies with private equity groups coming in and gobbling up private practices and what that looks like in the future of who our employers might be. It may not just be the traditional uh, academic private practice and hospital base, but some merger with 
the, the business world and looking at ways to create more economies of scale and group purchasing powers uh, to make it so that our practice now and a course that I helped co-run with a number of other uh, high-name people who have been on your show called Building a Successful Practice is really going back to the basics of teaching the business side of medicine to our residents and fellows. We do an excellent job in medical school residency fellowship, teaching them about anatomy, surgical techniques, going through the paces. Almost no program in the country has a dedicated business side of medicine series. So you know, teaching these residents and fellows, and then they have to start a practice and figuring out balance sheets and payer mix and CPT codes and DRG and and how do you work with a hospital and RVUs. I mean, it's just sort of the alphabet soup of technologies that get thrown around and most people have a little cursory understanding, but not a great really mastery of it. And so that's an important part of our future generation that we can't just teach them the actual medical side. We have to teach the business and and, uh, the important side because that does depend on their contracts for implants. You know, they may sign with one hospital who changes implants every three years because they get different contract pricing. What that will look like to a practice to be disruptive. Are you somebody who really needs to do it the same way every time? Or are you somebody who's very uh, flexible? And so I think those are things that are starting to gain uh, greater uh, recognition by societies and programs to train them. And I think that's an area that's important for our future generation. Very important and very excited, sir, to see the type of attendance y'all got at the last FPA meeting over in Philadelphia. Look forward to great things from that organization as y'all continue to expand that footprint around the country. Well, sir, you led us into this conversation, rep world, industry world, orthopod world. We're all seemingly on a parallel path these days with so many of the same challenges that were brought up in Symposium 1. I'm hearing many surgeons talk more about multiple streams of revenue. Is that the workaround to keep us ahead of this curve? Well, I think if you're fortunate to be in a position to do that, I think, yes. A couple things I can say, you know, the old saying, there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. Well, I think for me, as I've seen it and have been a part of health uh, economics and looking over uh, the last 20 years of my own career, that there's no doubt that the rising cost of healthcare is a major impediment around the world, especially in the United States. And with that, one of the things is that they have to figure out how to keep payments um, somewhat regulated. And physicians, I should say, are constantly on the chopping block, getting less money for the time and effort. We're having increased pressures because of adoption of electronic health records and ICD-10 and things that take time away from our true ability to take care of patients, to generate income with the uh, the burden of uh, what goes along with that. So, you know, I think as we look similar, the, the sales world, right, implant companies are seeing margins being reduced because of contract pricing. We see supply chain issues. I mean, every single major orthopedic company is having supply chain issues that's from the perspective of even getting implant sizing. You know, I'll, I'll show up and they'll say, hey, we, uh, the other day, we only have uh, this size unique compartmental knee. The uh, the material properties have gone up and so it's, demand is so high, they can't get the raw materials to make them. So we're all struggling with these type of issues. And, you know, I think that is a time in which you start to see out-of-the-box solutions and one of them being alternative revenue sources, whether it's reps carrying multiple lines, whether it's physicians looking at secondary income streams from renting their office space back to them 
owning physical therapy, MRI, ASCs, selling out to private equity that could help to manage or cut their overhead costs so not all small private practices can manage the billing, the collections, all the the regulatory stuff where they can outsource it to somebody they trust, they can get better contracts from insurance. There are certainly advantages for becoming more integrated with a larger system, whether that's being bought up by a hospital, a PE group, merging with other practices. I think you will continue to see significant consolidation within the orthopedic world that people will fall into really two camps, private equity and hospital-based. There's pros and cons to both those, but I do think there's going to be a lot of those type changes that we continue to see for the next few years. It's interesting you brought that up, sir. Getting back to the storm concept uh, going on during that particular meeting, uh, what do people do a lot of times in a storm is huddle together, and that's kind of what you're seeing happening on your side. Uh, I'm still waiting for private equity to come buy me out. <laughs> that's. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but uh, I, I agree. Consolidation. We haven't seen the end of that at all. Well, and I don't know that they would buy you out, but I do see a lot of these deals, private equity or practices turning to industry to become creative with rebates of saying, hey, we're going to open an ASC, but you know, two Honda tables and you know, a C-arm and this is a capital cost. And so negotiating with the implant company to say, hey, we're going to sign a five-year exclusive deal so that we can do it. And in return, they'll pay for all the startup costs. Your debt you're taking out, uh, your keeping on your P&L is less. And then you hit your targets, you do everything. It's sort of a repayment. So I, I think a lot of creative things, that's what I said, in times of adversity like this, you're going to see more out of the box type of solutions and being tied to a distributor or you know somebody influential in the industry who sees that not just the good old boy who or girl who comes in and has a you know a good personality and knows a little bit about the implants and can cover you or help you bring in a specialist when you have a more complicated one, but really figuring out how do you talk to the C-suites? How do we keep things going? How do we get to the ASC that runs efficiently? It's a team approach from the surgeon to the staff to industry partners and having leaders within industry, you know, more at the distributor level, manager level is going to be an important part of that sitting at the boardroom conference table and coming up with creative solutions to difficult problems. Great points there, doctor. I was taking notes on that one. Well, one outside the box solution that caught my attention lately, it's actually from a company you're connected with called Romtech. Let's hear an elevator pitch, doctor. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I need to disclose I'm a designer for implants for several companies, uh, Depew uh, with hip and knee implants and with Smith Nephew uh, as well. But uh, Romtech, short elevator pitch, one of my old fellows, he is therapist and uh, physical therapy partner, really were struggling on how to help rehab total knee patients since we know it's a challenge for them after surgery and came up with this essentially a stationary bike where the pedal radius can be varied on the operative leg. So most of our patients come back, you know, two weeks, four weeks, I can't get around on the bike yet. I get on it in therapy and they have me warm up, but I can only sort of go a little bit forward, a little bit back, or gosh, I can only go backwards. I haven't been able to go forwards. And once they are able to do a revolution, they're sort of like this, aha, psychologically, they feel better. They're excited. They see the improvement. And we know that the, the cycling motion is an excellent way to stretch the knee, work the quad with resistance, get the soft tissue swelling to start to work its way out. So with that, I got involved with him about five years ago, I think now, helping to provide input and switch from sort of an, a bike that's used mostly in the outpatient therapy setting to one that could be brought into the house. So you've probably seen this or certainly many surgeons can think it relevant that you'll get a patient who comes in at four-week check and Mr. Jones seems like you're 
motion is pretty poor. You're doing your therapy. You're really stretching it. And the patient's like, oh, yeah, I do it every day. And then the family member sitting right beside him is shaking the head. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't get off the couch. He sits in his lazy boy all day. Or the, the other example is a patient who comes in who's really a go-getter that you shouldn't anticipate the need to be so swollen and stiff. But you look at him and you ask him, what are you doing? Oh, I'm working out five times a week. I'm doing this. My therapist is pushing me too hard. So there is sort of a, a Goldilocks position where you don't want them to do too little and get stiff and weak, but you don't want them to do too much where they get swollen and inflamed. So having the portable connect delivered to the house and asking them to do five sessions a day for about 12 minutes and separate it, and it gives them feedback. It's all connected. It's te essentially telemedicine at its finest where we can get results immediately. I can log on to the dashboard and see patients who did their workout the day before, and we can send them a message and say, Dr. Nolly says you're doing great. And the ones in red, my nurse can then focus and say, you know, Miss Smith, why, uh, why is your pain so high? Why didn't you use your bike? And we can intervene early so we can reduce manipulations, um, reduce narcotic use, things like that. And we just had a paper accepted uh, that's now on PubMed, uh, Journal of Arthroplasty, looking at the results. Significant improvement in knee range of motion, significant improvement in problems with coup scores, significant uh, reduction in need for manipulation. And all that equates to is actually less cost to the health system. So very few new technologies that cost less and get better outcomes. So we've been very happy using it on our patients. And actually, it's expanding a lot. I think uh, like new technology, it's starting to catch on. And I think, again, if we can improve the outcomes and our knee patients now come in using far less narcotics and they're happy at four weeks. I used to hate seeing the knee patients right after the hip patients because the knee patients would complain about how stiff they were and still on the walker. And now the knee patients look just about as good at the first visit as the hip patients do. So I do think there's improvement there with that technology. Exciting stuff there, sir. You spoke of go-getters. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the Gaylord hanging out with just those reps in our space as part of the inaugural Society for Medical Representative Advancement get-together. Such an honor to have you as part of this mission to serve those who don the red hat every day. Any advice to us reps uh, in the space here in 2022 with the challenges that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice I would have is that the go-getter attitude, whether it's uh, the medical student who's trying to get into orthopedics, the, the resident who wants to get the best fellowship, the fellow who wants to get the best job, in anywhere that you have grit and determination and go-getter attitude, I think it's going to do well for your success. And the same goes from the rep world, right? I don't just need a sales rep to come in and open boxes and make sure that you know the trays are there. I need somebody to troubleshoot. I've got 10, 12 cases in a day. Any one minute delay of those cases adds up and compounds and that adds to frustration. I also need somebody to help keep me organized and uh, I think be really an advocate, not just a simply a cover person, but somebody who can get me in front of the engineers. I've got this question or this issue. They're seeking other ways to make sure that things go successful. They're bringing in, we've got these new pods in our OR. Unbelievable. We can open all the trays in 27 seconds. So before the blue wrap trays and all, that whole project has made us more efficient. That came from a rep who just was going to a conference and he went by all the industry booths. I had to give a shout out. It was Dustin Warren, my, my Depew rep, because I have to give credit where credit's due or these some of these newer drapes where we can drape the patient in a minute. And they may be a little bit more expensive here, but going back to the paper that I referenced early from our institution in Rothman, every minute in the OR, industry-wide in the U.S., is between about $30 to $50 per minute in orthopedics. So you save five minutes here and you're doing 12 cases, well, that's one hour of time 
that the staff can go home earlier. We've all had staffing shortages. They get burnt out. They get frustrated, especially if you have to pull them in after hours over time. So anything we can do to keep costs low, staff happy, less delay and turnover, I think is an improvement. And that's a collaboration of surgeons. I just don't have enough time to go chasing down all these new technologies. So somebody who's a go-getter who brings it to me and can show me value, not just, hey, I'm going to make some money on this, but true value, I think is an important quality to have that will do well, whether it's in the rep world or the medicine world or any other field. A lot of patient choice and compassionate doctor awards that you've racked up over the years. What advice would you give for surgeons in today's environment, looking to maximize that patient experience? Yeah, I think we've gotten to a more informed consumer, whether it's the patients reading on the internet about different implants, robotics, surgical uh, techniques, anterior approach, whatever it is. I think having some presence of mind to at least advertise yourself in a very you know reasonable way. I wouldn't put billboards on the side of the road saying you're better than everybody else, but you know, to be able to market yourself, it's all about the ability to have a search or some way to access for the patient to look up and see testimonials or patients uh, that uh, talk about their experience. And as you go to ASCs, I think, you know, one of them is you really have to have a, a great success there because it is a little bit more risky and dangerous and you, you don't want the patient to feel like they were pushed out or not prepared or they came back because they slipped and fell and got injured. So um, I do think those are important things that Surgeons need to, again, know more than just the practice of medicine. They need to know the business of medicine. They need to know um, the marketing, advertising side of things in terms of promoting themselves and their practice to stay ahead of the curve. Well, doctor, we talked on the phone the other day about a subject I am so passionate about. Has nothing to do with orthopedics. Construction of the perfect hamburger. What data have you collected there in St. Louis, the carnivore capital that will serve this audience in this, what I consider to be a noble quest. You know, it's funny you say that. I uh, The older I get, and maybe you'll appreciate this or not, the more my metabolism slows down. So first thing I'd say is for anybody who feels like they've got the dad bod or just keep getting heavier, get rid of the bun. I'm no longer a bun guy in my burger. I know that sounds totally counter, but uh, with that, um, I love a good black and blue burger, a little mixed up uh, onion with the blue cheese and then peppercorn on the outside or a, a really uh, a nice uh, piece of uh, seasoned meat with uh, some of the special seasoning from the, uh, the chop house here that we have in town. So I'm all about uh, grilling out when it's nice and uh, enjoying some time outside as well. What meat do you look for in the meat case? Yeah, I think we're maybe uh, lucky here, as you said, in the Midwest because we are an area that's very uh, inundated with farmers. So I just go to the, the local, small, supporting local business butchery, and usually they have great cuts of meat. Um, I'm a little bit uh, biased against the the uh, chain grocery store meat that could have been sitting there for two or three days. So I do like uh, very uh, fresh ground uh, beef as my go-to. Well, doctor, you've accomplished a lot in your career. What's next? Well, if you hear these screaming children in the background, I love it. I'm supposed to go outside and take a walk and get the dog uh, trained uh, to do a better job walking on the leash today. So I guess that's my short-term goal. But you know, I think enjoying my practice and continuing to be a lifelong learner and figure out, you know, things change with time and got to stay ahead of the curve and, and the knowledge base is constantly evolving. And uh, that's that's true for medicine as it is for most everything. So encourage people to read and experience things and think outside of the box at times. Well, I certainly miss that sound, doctor. Miss the chaos. Well, you've made an indelible mark on the reconstruction space, sir. And as we seek to make a positive mark on the reps in our space, I just want to deliver 
a sincere thank you. Well, I appreciate uh, Kevin making the time and effort and all the great work you do with your podcast and getting out the good word and educating and uh, being an advocate for uh, your area of expertise as well. What an amazing conversation. You know, one area of expertise for Dr. Nunley is serving those around him. I've always admired him for that, whether it's fellow surgeons or even us reps. So thankful that he made time to share his story with us as that was most inspiring. Well, you know what? You heard children in the background with screams of joy, and we certainly have our share of children in our space screaming as well, except, well, they're device reps and they're adults, and it's just more on the pain side. And I so look forward working alongside you to figure out how we can stop all that screaming, right? Nobody wants to hear that as we kick off this joy and pain series. Next episode, looking behind the curtain at one potential source of pain, the puppeteers pulling the strings, making decisions that can affect our joy and our pain. So look forward to this pain relief journey with you. And I hope you enjoy an amazing week.